Good afternoon. It's good to see everyone here. I'm going to try and put a timer on myself. I've been told that I always go over time. And so I'm going to heed the advice of my peers. So basically, this is supposed to vibrate in my hand when I reach a certain time limit. So if I preach really long, it means I'm ignoring this. <laughs> You'll know in advance. All right, here we go. Now, the title for this afternoon's uh, message is Seeing with New Eyes. I'm curious, how many of you have read that book by Ty Gibson? It's called Seeing with New Eyes. It's a little black-colored book. Anybody in here? All right, well, if you're inspired to by the end of this sermon to uh, go back and take a look at the book, I found it to be very refreshing. And the premise of the book is kind of about approaching God, and sometimes we approach God with certain preconceived ideas. And this book goes through a, a series of uh, Bible stories and presents God in a way that's very refreshing. And uh, this sermon is kind of inspired off of that idea. We're going to start with this experiment. If you can just watch the video, listen to the instructions, and follow through with the instructions, and this will kind of introduce this afternoon's talk. This is a gradual change test. Watch this short film and try to spot the change. Only one thing will change. Did you see it? Few people notice it, even though it happened in plain sight. Here's what changed. We think changes draw attention, but we don't realize how much we can miss. We're blind to our own change blindness. Now that you know what's changing, you can actually see the change happening. It just doesn't draw your attention automatically. Watch it again. Overconfidence that we will notice such changes reflects an everyday illusion, the illusion of attention. Check out the book, The Invisible Gorilla, to learn more. www.theinvisiblegorilla.com uh, If you go on YouTube and you're ever bored one day and you type in change blindness or invisible gorilla, there's a series of tests that they actually show you on YouTube. One of them consists of one group of people are wearing white shirts, the other group of people are wearing black shirts, and they're passing a basketball in between each other. Have you guys seen that experiment? Uh, if you haven't, it's really good. Actually, I think uh, Jody kind of showed us a couple videos at one of our discussion talks, and I was kind of like, oh, and I did some searching. Anyway, very interesting stuff. Now, here's my question for you. How many of you saw what changed in the picture first time around? Anybody? All right, I didn't either. Now, when it actually showed you the answer, how many of you actually believed that what had changed actually changed? Because there was a part of me that thought, really? No. And then when it showed the answer, I was like, no. When they show you like the dramatic change and the gradual change, I thought there was like, I didn't think it was really real. Anybody else think that? Okay, so a couple people. All right. So this kind of shows you how we approach change as humans, or we approach uh, certain things for the first time. and. I find it interesting that even when we are told something is going to be different about this certain picture, it's really hard to tell what's different. And when they actually tell you the answer, sometimes it's even hard to believe even if someone tells you the answer. And I kind of wonder if we experience the same thing about Jesus 
I wonder if we experience the same thing about our picture of God as we approach the scriptures, because we are told God is different. And when you read through the scriptures, you're kind of like, what? No. And then when you experience God for yourself, even there's almost a second question that comes behind that, even when you're given the answer. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through a Bible story that I find to be quite confusing first time around. And as you read through the story, what I want you to ask yourself is, what is the character of God like, and why does God act in this way? And so, if you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. And this is a story of the Syrophoenician woman. So Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. For those of you who have your, you know, I'm so used to saying Bibles, but now this day and age we've got our smartphones and our iPads and our iPods and I'm realizing how old I am. So anyway, Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. And the story starts out with this verse. It says, Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, geographically, when it says he went away from there, uh, if you go back to Matthew chapter 14 and you read through the stories, you find that Jesus is in the town called Gennesaret. And he has performed some miracles and he's crossed the sea and he calmed the seas during that story. And so we know initially he was in Gennesaret, and here in this story he is in Tyre and Sidon. We pick up in verse 22. It says, And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Now, to give a little bit of a background, to give a bit of background to the relationship between Jesus, his disciples, and this Canaanite woman, there were some racial barriers and there were some religious barriers as well. Uh, historically, if you read through the Old Testament, you find that the Canaanites were a pagan religion. They worshipped a separate set of gods. They did not acknowledge the, the monotheistic approach to God that the Hebrews had. And so historically, there was a bit of tension between the Jews and the Canaanites. And so here Jesus is. He is Jewish. He has his 12 Jewish disciples. They've gone up to this area, and this Canaanite woman comes and says, Have mercy on me, you son of David. Now, when I first look at this text, I kind of wonder, why does she call him son of David? How does she know who he is? Now, when I walk down the street, I don't have strange people coming to me saying, Have mercy on me, Roy, son of Alex. Like, nobody really knows who I am. And so, when this woman gives Jesus this title, it's quite loaded. And what I want to bring to your attention is the meaning of the title, Son of David. Now, in the Hebrew language, uh, there's something called gematria. And basically, what that means is there's a number-pointing system that's connected to the Hebrew language. So, in other words, here are the first nine letters of the Hebrew alphabet. You've got Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, and then it continues on. And each letter has a numerical value placed on it. And so, basically, if you look at the name David or David in, in uh, or Dawid in uh, in Hebrew, you've got three letters: Dalit, Vav, and Dalit. And that's basically the name David. And so, if you place the numerical value to the name David, what number do you get? Yeah, 14. So. Dalid has a numerical value of 4, Vav has the numerical value of 6, and then you have Dalid at the end. And if you add everything together, you get 
14. Okay. Now, the reason why this number is significant is let's go back to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to read verse 1. Now, I don't know how many of you have started the gospel thinking, man, I'm going to read through the New Testament this month or this year or whatever, and you start out and you think, why is this in the Bible? <laughs> and it starts out with the genealogy, and it's the most exciting thing to read through ever. Not really. Okay, so I'm going to read through a portion of this genealogy with you. And basically, it's connecting Jesus to David. So verse 1, it says, The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of who? Alright, now this is significant because God promised through the Bible, there's a prophecy that's given in the book of Psalms saying, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God is going to come and take away the sins of the world. And so everybody was looking for this Messiah. Okay. Now if you move on to verse 17 and 18, it says, So, and then from verse 2 to verse 17, there's this genealogy given of uh, David and Jesus. And so verse 17 says, So all the generations from Abraham to David are how many? Fourteen. From David to the deportation to Babylon, how many? Fourteen. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, how many? Alright, so God is doing something intentional. He's like, David, your name has the number 14 as a value to your name. Now there are going to be 14 generations repeated, repeated, repeated. So everybody knows there's something very significant about David. So here comes Jesus. And here's this Canaanite woman. She comes to him and she says, Lord... Have mercy on me, you son of David. She's saying, I acknowledge you fulfill that prophecy. Complete strange woman. She wasn't born in Judah. And she just hears about these things and she's like, aha, this is the one. So when she uses that title, it's loaded. Now, if you go back and you do a word search and you try to figure out how many people address Jesus with that title, it's very few. Now, I see some of you having your Bibles and counting the names. Is it really 14? And what happens is, if you actually go to the book of Chronicles, and this whole, like most of the book is a genealogical book, if you will, there are not 14 generations. And so the question is, well, why do they say it's 14? Somebody's lying in there. And basically, it's a theological statement, if you will. For us, it's kind of like, all right, they say there's 14, there better be 14. If there aren't 14, something's not right here. Like, what's going on? And in the Bible, God is just saying, listen, just remember the number 14 because there's meaning behind that number 14, even if there aren't literally 14 generations. So if you go through and you count, okay, from, let's see, where do we start? Are we starting from Abraham? And you count, <laughs> like, well, actually, you should go do it. See how long it takes. <laughs> but from what I understand, the numbers don't completely match up, but there is a theological statement. And so, hence, you have this interaction. Now, my point in bringing this up, let's go back to Matthew chapter 15. And we're going to go back to verse 23. This woman comes to Jesus, and she approaches him a specific way. Now, if you were ever going to approach Jesus and there were a right way and a wrong way to approach Jesus, do you think she approached him the right way or the wrong way? What do you think? Yeah. She was like, I acknowledge that you are who you say you are. And there are very few people in the time of Jesus' life that actually believe him. And she is like, you are the Messiah. She's got it right. 
She's saying all the right words, and she comes to him humbly, right? She doesn't come with a sense of entitlement. She doesn't say, Jesus, you come here and you heal my daughter. She comes to him and she says, Lord, have mercy on me. Notice what Jesus does next. If you read verse 23, it says, But he did not answer her a word. So she comes to Jesus, says all the right things, does all the right things, and she gets ignored. Now, have you ever been in a place in your life where you really need help from God, and in your life there are just circumstances that you have no control over, and you come to Jesus because he's all you got, and you come to him and you say, Jesus, please help me right now, and you don't see a thing happen, you don't hear a thing happen, and nothing changes in your life. Have you ever experienced that before? It's one of the most difficult, frustrating, testing things that I have ever experienced in my life as a Christian. Because I've been told, if you pray the right way, if you say the right words, you come to God humbly, He will answer your prayer. And there are even promises that are kind of like, you ask anything in my name and I will hear you. And so, I'm looking at this story, I'm wondering, hey Jesus, like, there's like a part of your bar, uh, <laughs> there's a part of your contract that you're not fulfilling here. Like, I think you need to say something, do something. Now, in this story, it presents three challenges. The first one is the challenge of silence. And the reason why I want to go through these challenges is because I think every Christian that approaches God will experience these challenges that are laid out here in, in this story. Everybody. And depending on how you handle that challenge, it will determine your experience with God. And here, plainly written, Jesus ignores this woman. So everybody has to deal with silence. Here's the second challenge. If that were not enough, it says, And his disciples came and implored Jesus, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. And so here are Jesus' disciples. These are the people that he's trying to train. Like These are the ones that are going to spread the gospel and share about God's love to the whole world. And this woman says, Jesus, help me. And the disciples say, God, or they say, Jesus, send her away. Like, tell her to go away. The second challenge is going to be rejection from God's people. I don't know if you've ever come to a group of Christians and you've expected something from them, whether it was showing some genuine kindness, showing, showing some, ah, just a little bit of niceness, if you will. And instead, rather than people being embracing of you and having, inviting you into their community, you just feel like you're an outsider. And rather than feeling less lonely, you feel more lonely coming into a group of a lot of people. And here this woman comes to Jesus' disciples and they say, get out of here. Third challenge comes up. Verse 24. So, in review, so far Jesus has ignored her. So far she's been rejected by all of Jesus' followers that are with him. And in verse 24 it says, But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, it's almost like he's in her town. She says, hey, can I get some help? And he's like, I'm not here for you. Now, can you imagine how this woman would feel? It's kind of like, hey, like you are the son of David. You are the Messiah. Like, you're the son of God. And he goes, too bad. Like, not for you. She continues, but she came and began to bow down before him, saying, 
Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So if it weren't enough to say, I didn't come for you, he's got to call her an animal. He's kind of like, listen, I've got bread. It's not okay for me to take the bread that's for children and give it to the dogs. And she's kind of like, I can't imagine what she's thinking right now. The story comes down, uh, the story continues on, and she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Now, if I were in this woman's shoes, I don't know if I would have been as persistent as she was. I probably would have left at the part where Jesus ignores her. Like, if I go to somebody and I say, Hey, how are you doing? My name is Roy. And the person gives me the cold shoulder. I'm not likely to go and say, Hey, my name is... You know what I mean? I'm more likely just to say, uh, The person doesn't want to talk to me. See ya. Hey, have a nice day. Or even if I'm in need, it's kind of like there's only a certain limit that I'll go to before I just say, You know what? This isn't worth it. Like, I have to bow on my knees, get called names, be ignored, be rejected to get what I want, and this is exactly what this woman has to go through. And you don't have to raise your hand or anything like that, but in your mind, I want to ask you a question. If you were this woman, would you be willing to go through what this woman went through to get what she wanted? So this is where I want to introduce the perceptual change. Because initially, when I read this story, I think to myself, I don't know if I really want to be a follower of God because you kind of, you've got to jump through a lot of hoops. You have to go through a lot of red tape. Like, my wife and I just applied for permanent residency and it was almost too much to be like one more paper and like game out, forget it. Like, I don't need this country. <laughs> Actually, I love it here. <laughs> but it's almost like if you have to do too much, well, how much do you really have to do? So notice how Jesus responds to this woman. Verse 28 says, Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. So, anybody confused by the story? Or it all, it all makes pretty good sense? Anybody find it challenging? or do you, Does anybody see the love of God shining through this story? I'm just curious. Yeah, I, I, I don't really either. Kind of halfway. <laughs> After all, he, he did heal the woman's daughter, right? So it's kind of like, he did something. Now, for me, there are some things in this story that unlock this story. And I want to share this with you. And I'm wondering, will it bring about perceptual change? And so, if you look at verse 29, notice it says, Departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee, and having gone up to the mountain, he was sitting there. So notice... At the beginning of the story, Jesus is in the town of Gennesaret. And as soon as he finishes in Gennesaret, he goes up to the coasts of Tyre and Sidon, has this interaction with this woman, and then he leaves the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. Now, here's a map of that area. I'm wondering, sometimes the green disappears. Oh, not very good. Okay, so Jesus is in this area initially. And he travels all the way over to Tyre and Sidon. And I don't know if you can tell, but there's a mountain in between those two areas. And I imagine that being quite far away. Now, I was squinting at my computer because 
screen because there's like a little key here that tells you how long that is. I don't really know. But what I do know is that the Sea of Galilee is quite large. And if you look at the distance between here and here, it's a long way to walk. And my question is, why did Jesus go to Tyre and Sidon? Because there are no, like, he does most of his ministry in this area. And he spends very little time in this area in the Bible. Actually, this is like one of the very few times where he's even there. And so when I read this story, it just kind of tells me that Jesus went to this place for this woman. He has the interaction, and then he leaves. Now, that's kind of a uh, thesis statement, right? And now I'm going to try and back up that statement. Now, there are a few things in Jesus' conversation with this woman that gives him away. Okay? The first thing that I want to tackle is his communication to the woman, where he first says, I am not come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, in my mind, I ask myself the question, what does that statement mean? I have come here to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, Israel is a person, right? And you guys are pretty familiar with uh, Jewish history, where you've got three people that are known as the fathers of the Jewish nation. You've got Abraham, you have Isaac, and you have Jacob. Now, Jacob's name got changed later on, and his name is now Israel. And so when he says, I have come for Israel, he's saying, I'm coming for people of the lineage of Israel. And basically, you can almost clump Abraham, Isaac, and Israel together. Whenever, respond, whenever someone says, oh, I am a son of Abraham, or I am a son of Isaac, or son of Israel, that household is kind of clumped together. And so what I want to do is share this Bible verse with you. We're here in Galatians chapter 3, verse 14. And it says, That the blessing of Abraham might come on the who? Gentiles, through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, if I want to be connected to Abraham, if I want to be connected to that family, and I'm not related to him, let's say I'm a Gentile or someone who's outside of that lineage or outside of that bloodline, according to this verse, how do I get into the in-club, if you will? Okay, through Jesus? Yes? Anything else in there? And I guess that word through is used a couple times, right? Yeah. So notice, if you are not connected to Abraham or his family, and you want to be connected to Abraham and his family, when Paul writes to the Galatians, he's saying, hey, by the way, the family is a lot bigger than you think it is. The way that you get into the family is through faith. And so notice here at the end of the story, when Jesus is amazed at this woman, he says, great is your what? Faith. So when he talks to this woman and he says, woman, I have not come but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel, he's talking about her. He's saying, I am looking for people with faith. And it's almost like he's wondering, what's she going to do next? Then he throws out another confusing line by saying, listen, I can't give that which is deserving to children and give it to dogs. Now, in this story, the end result we know is that he heals the woman's daughter. And so my question is this, did she get crumbs or did she get bread? What do you think? Yeah, she got bread. She got what she was looking for. 
And so when he starts saying these confusing things, this woman is thinking, man, like, this guy is, he's so offensive. Like, what's going on here? But she just keeps pushing forward. But what she doesn't know is Jesus is trying to tell her, look, I'm here for you. And I'm not here to give you crumbs. I'm here to give you bread. So here's my question. Why all the mystery? Why does Jesus make it so confusing? Why doesn't he just tell her, ah, your daughter is healed? Now, in this story, there are three groups of people, or three kind of categories of people in my mind. One is Jesus himself. Two is this woman. And three are the disciples. Now, we know for sure what's on Jesus' heart because he heals a woman's daughter, right? And he's trying to communicate to her, hey, like, I'm considering you one of my own children. Yeah, you're part of the family. But if you look at the mindset of the disciples, they're, kind of, they're, not, they're nowhere near there. They just kind of think, oh, she's this Canaanite woman, send her away. Oh, we don't want to heal her daughter, or we're not here for you. We're here on holiday. Like, why are you bothering us? And so Jesus is not only trying to minister to this woman, but Jesus is trying to minister to the disciples as well. And so the question is, how does he do this in a tactful way without making them feel terrible? And so when this woman first comes to Jesus and says, Lord, heal my daughter, Jesus practices silence. And he wants to see, what are my disciples going to do? What's on their hearts? And we are very familiar with what happens. Now, here's my question. This woman, she goes away, her daughter is healed, and Jesus is on his way from Tyre and Sidon all the way back to this area. And the story says that we're back in Capernaum or Gennesaret area. They have this whole distance to process what actually happened. And in their minds, they're thinking, man, why did Jesus say all of those things? And it finally would have clicked in their mind all far out. Like, we're actually really racist. <laughs> like, far out. Like, we have problems with people who don't believe in the same things that we do. And they would have been convicted, like, Jesus actually healed that woman's daughter. And they would have known. Maybe there's more to our religion than just us. Maybe there's more to the gospel than just what I want, my needs, what I think is right. And Jesus begins to break down the barriers of what's going on. And so... When it comes to the silence of Jesus, he has something in mind that the disciples, they don't know what he's doing. The woman doesn't know what he's doing, but later on, it begins to make sense. Now, I wonder, in your life, when you've experienced moments of silence, have you ever wondered, why is this happening? Now, I've been shown this text time and time again, Romans 8:28, And I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this text, but it says, and we know that how many things work together? All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. So it's kind of saying, listen, if you are close to God, everything's just going to be fine. And I don't know if you've ever had those experiences where you're just thinking, everything is not fine. Why is God putting this in my life? Why can't there be some other way? Why not? And a few verses later, in verse 32, in the same chapter, it says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? In other words, 
God has given the most valuable thing that he has. It's Jesus, and he's given that to us. And if he has given us Jesus, why would he hold back anything else that's good for us? And I almost think this verse in context is after you know, the promise that everything's going to be good, because there are times when we don't understand God's plan, but Paul is saying there will never be a time where you have to doubt his love because he's given us Jesus. It's the most valuable thing that he has. And sometimes the plans of God make no sense at all, especially when we're going through that time of difficulty, when we're going through that time of silence. It doesn't make sense. And sometimes it's through understanding the love of God that that trial begins to make sense. And sometimes it just doesn't, honestly. Like There, there are a number of things that I've gone through where I wondered, why did that happen? But in the end, what I realized is, you know what? I'm still here. I know God has given me Jesus. I know there is a plan for me in the future. And ultimately, there is salvation. There is heaven. There is this sense where God is trying to communicate. I am looking out for you because he's given us Jesus. And so in the moments where something doesn't make sense, we can always look to the cross and say, well, that makes sense to me. And sometimes it's the most difficult thing to accept, and yet in that process you will find the presence of God in your life. And there have been a number of times, especially in the last uh, maybe three years, that uh, this has been very, very true. And so if you have ever wondered why certain circumstances are taking place, I highly encourage you to spend a thoughtful moment thinking about the love of God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for you. And I hope that that gives you that peace, that comfort, that sense that God is there, even if there is silence. I also think the silence takes place because God is trying to teach a lesson to God's people. I don't know how many of you here when uh, Rebecca came here from Adra, and she had a statistic of all the poverty that's taking place in the world, all of the, basically, whether it's famine, poverty, or just people that have high needs. She's saying, if you look at the amount of resources that we have in developed countries, there is more than enough to cover all the poverty that's in the world. And she's saying, the poverty exists, and one can say, well, God, where are you in that? One can also say, well, why aren't the people, why don't the people who have lots of resources just help those that don't have a lot of resources, and then we'd be fine. And sometimes I kind of wonder if the silence is there to give a wake-up call to God's people to say, you know what, it's time for you to do something about it. And um, I think that's the case in this story where God gives the silence, and the disciples are kind of like, yeah, we know why God is giving the silence, but in reality, it's for them. And um, as I read the story, I'm kind of challenged. Um, the final thing that sticks out to me in this story as we close is, on the part of the woman, she had no idea what Jesus was trying to do. She reads Jesus in all the wrong ways. She puts herself in a place where she is submitting to God in a huge way, not just verbally, not just physically, but you know, she's willing to call herself a dog. And she's saying, listen, just give me some crumbs. And when I read this story, this woman impresses me so much because she doesn't understand Jesus at all. She gets him in all the wrong ways, and yet she gives him all the right response. And she perseveres through it, and she says, you know what? I don't understand you the right way. You know what? I don't understand what's going on, but I need help because, of course, her daughter was uh, possessed by a demon. And I wonder in our lives, and this is, this is something that I've been really challenged with, is 
when I misunderstand people, am I willing to give them the benefit of the doubt, especially with my own family, right? Like my wife and I will have conversations and I misunderstand what she says. And I'm thinking, why did she say that? Now, if I were this woman, I would just say, you know what? My wife loves me. I love my wife. Let's just, you know what, honey? Like, I love you. But instead, I'm wondering, why did you say that? Well, you're not allowed to say it. And I, oh, yeah. And then I give a response back, right? Because I, I need to give that one up that, you know, that's right. <laughs> and this woman does not do that because she has prioritized that which is most important. And in our lives, I wonder if we prioritize that which is most important, I wonder if we would experience God in a complete different way. As you ponder these things, and as we discuss them, I look forward to hearing uh, hearing the discussions. But may you be blessed, and um, yeah, happy Sabbath.
pray. Father God, firstly, we just want to thank you for the beautiful music that, that we've had for, for our service today. And uh, as we think about you, as we think about Jesus, may a new perception of who you are um, be understood in our hearts. And as we continue to think about this story, as we think about you throughout scriptures, there are so many instances where it's confusing and it's very difficult to understand your heart. And I just pray that as we continue to ponder, as we continue to study, and even as we discuss this afternoon, um, may things become clear and may our hearts be ministered to. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.